Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits. I'm Paul Reeswindell. Hello, everybody. I'm Eric Klein. On the show today, we're excited to bring back two of our favorite scholars, Jennifer Lynn Stover and Hannah McGregor, to talk about podcasting, sound studies, and the often underacknowledged labor behind this work. Jennifer Lynn Stover is Associate Professor of English at Binghamton University and co-founder and editor-in-chief of Sounding Out, the Sound Studies blog, as well as author of The Sonic Color Line. And also Hannah McGregor, who is Assistant Professor of Publishing at Simon Fraser University, as well as co-director of the Amplify Podcast Network and co-creator of Witch Please, a feminist podcast on the world of Harry Potter. Hannah and Jennifer, thanks for joining us once again on Radio Survivor. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we've been having a lot of conversations behind the scenes at Radio Survivor about work-life balance and burnout, and it seems like it's been a challenging year and a half or longer for a lot of people. Well, for everyone, really. (laughs) Everyone on Earth. Isn't that nice, Who's been having a good time? Yeah. I know. Everyone on Earth is living through very similar challenges, but everyone has a different load to bear. Oh, Eric, I already disagree with you. Some people are fine. I think some people have lived through an incredibly minor challenge and other people are living through a truly devastating challenge. Some of the greatest privilege people are probably doing okay. Yeah. Those dudes go into space. And yeah. Down. In the same day. Yeah, <laughs> Some dudes are going to space. Important, yeah, important to to have those caveats. Um, but, you know, yeah, I know that, you know, personally, you know, there have been strains on work and school and home life, you know, for everyone that I know. Um, and that's part of what um, is framing our conversation today as we think about how we're all maintaining our mental health, our physical health, our relationships, our work demands. And radio and podcasting isn't immune, you know, to all of this, Um, nor is Radio Survivor, you know, to be honest. So I know that that both of you are extremely busy and you've managed podcast projects in addition to your main academic work. And so I thought maybe, maybe we start out about start out talking about how you manage that additional labor of podcasting and editing shows when you have all these other demands on you. We should, <laughs> we should direct a question. Uh, you got to tell us which one of us is yeah. going to talk. Hannah, first. Hannah McGregor. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're up. Okay. Yes. I'm going to say two things, but I'm going to say both of them in a really long way. So get ready. So the two things that I want to talk about are the concept of invisible labor and the problem of uh, doing non-traditional work in a university. Um, So here's a thing about doing non-traditional work in a university. Our universities love it. They love when we are doing work with a higher profile. They love when we are doing work that gets media coverage. They love when we are doing work that gets downloads and has obvious like applicability to people's actual lives. Um, It's so good for like the branding of the university and the PR of the university. And for the most part, institutions are still unwilling to recognize that as actual work, which means the expectation becomes that you do that in addition to everything that everybody else is also doing. Um, 
And yes, that's and that keeps trap. rising. The thing that everyone else is doing keeps rising and rising too. On top of it, the, I've just been clapping silently over here. <laughs> to everything right, the expectations keep going, keep going yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. So like that's a big piece of it. A big piece of why <laughs> those of us doing non traditional things are so tired is because we're like also publishing peer reviewed books at the same time as doing podcasts, even though the podcasts are as much work as the peer-reviewed books. And we do the publicly engaged stuff, the community engaged stuff, the non-traditional stuff, for the most part, because it's values driven. Because we, we want, you know, like I make podcasts because I want to talk to communities outside of the university because I want to have conversations with people who aren't academics because I think that knowledge should be for everyone. Um, Like my podcasting is really rooted in like a feminist approach to scholarship. And because it's values driven, it's easier for the institution to extract double the labor from me. So it's, so that's, that's thing one. Yeah, <laughs> which which trap. I should add, people who are not in ac- the, the academic world know exactly what you're talking about when it comes to volunteer community media. Yes. Same, yes. same deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? It's that, mm-hmm. it's the um, uh, do what you love trap of late capitalism, which is mm-hmm. do what you love and we can undervalue it and not pay you for it. Which is, I mean, we can talk about hope labor at some point. Let's put a pin in that. Let's talk about hope labor oh, let, at some let, point. Let's, I will, I will make sure we don't miss that. I love it. Yeah. But the other thing that I think a lot about podcasting and the concept of invisible labor is invisible to whom? Which is a question I always ask when we talk about mm-hmm. invisible labor. Um, because there... <laughs> There are lots of, okay, so my context here is academic, and it is, like, dudes who have started making a podcast, and their minds are blown by how much work it is, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, nobody's talking about invisible labor. And it's like, bitch, who do you think publishes your journal articles? Like, somebody, I'm sorry for all the profanity, uh, somebody's, somebody is typesetting your books somebody is copy editing your books somebody is managing the production of your books someone drives the truck (laughs) somebody drives the look like so much labor is going into your everything that we produce the complex infrastructure of knowledge production and if you don't think of that as invisible labor it might be because you just don't see it period and so I always, I, I am wary when we talk about podcasting as involving invisible labor, as though there isn't huge amounts of labor involved in literally every form of knowledge production. Yes. And as though what labor is invisible and what labor is, is visible isn't like a deeply political question. Yes. Yes. Jenny, do you want to expand on that? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Like my brain is going in, in 50 different directions. Um, well, like that just made me think of how, you know, we stopped sounding out, um, during the pandemic, we were on a very long pause for approximately a year. 
for exactly those reasons, because it is something we actually talk about, like the labor of love that is sounding out. There's a, an article we did in the digital sound studies book that came out on Duke a couple years ago, where we actually kind of tell our origin story and how all of this came about. And we kind of end with that question, like, are we just now, you know, in trying to find something that we love and that we could commit ourselves to that could be our own are we just now value added to the university and now making everyone's job harder? Cause now they're going to be expected to also do something that they, you know, love and care about in addition to all the other stuff they're supposed to love and care about. So we've been really concerned about that all the way through. So our immediate, our immediate decision was, was to pause. We did not want to feel as if we were extracting academic labor from others. Um, last thing I wanted to do was be writing emails about where's your essay when I don't know, you know, what people's life situations <laughs> yeah. are yeah. in addition to our own. And then we also didn't want to contribute to the publishing inequity that's currently going on where, you know, we we're talking about some people having it easier during the pandemic where um, people who aren't caregivers, people who are in debt, people who um, don't have the same kind of teaching loads, people who, you know, for some people who don't have, you know, are removed from some of the immediate sickness and death are publishing at much higher rates and sending things out. And there's, there's, you know, going to be a, a couple year bubble where caregivers are, are behind. Um, mm -hmm. Or I should say they're doing what they should do. Everyone else is accelerating in, out of self-interest um, and, and opportunism. So we didn't want to contribute to that. We wanted to maintain the equity in our publishing. And that was really important to us. We started up again in April and we're maintaining fairly well. But recently we've had to pause again just because everything else has gone up. You know, like we were saying, the teaching demands have gone up. We are now kind of caregivers to our students um, by expectation from the university in addition to our, our love and care that we provide as, as educators. So it's just been really difficult. And I have to say, people have not been so kind in yeah. their writing. Um, it's now, you know, I feel like the, the more readers we got and the, the kind of bigger sounding out is perceived to be, the more people treat us as if we work for them or we're kind mm. of serving them or we are secretaries or, and not that you should treat secretaries that way either. I'm just saying, but now I know how I, some of those people treat uh, the, the assistants yeah. that, that I, help them I out. Just, Cause I get those emails because, yeah. I'm the, because I'm the person who said everyone's dealing with the pandemic at the same time. I also want to mention that I just read an article that uh, young people are experiencing a lot more disruption and stress yes. than older people during the pandemic. Yes. That, that the, the so-called Gen Z cohort um, yep. is really, and it makes sense that they're, that they're, and there are students. Yeah. Their lives mm -hmm. have been disrupted in a way that yeah. is different from, from older workers. Well, and yes, yeah, the surgeon general of the United States this week, you know, made this kind of unprecedented statement about, I think it was focused on teens specifically and, you know, depression and anxiety being, a crisis, which any of us who are parents of teenagers right now are well aware of that. Um, but I, I thought it was very striking to hear this from a government official, you know, acknowledging, um, and, and we're hearing this certainly, uh, you know, where I am, that all of the schools, uh, you know, all of the elementary and high schools are having, uh, you know, unprecedented behavior challenges. Um, students and teachers are having a rough time and yeah i guess i we should maybe ask specifically what kind of 
you said you're being asked to be caregivers to your your young adult students. How is that manifesting in in at the places where you teach? Um, well, it's manifesting in like we have this whole very uh, elaborate new digital architecture for like like noting changes in students' behavior for noticing grades um, up and wow. down. We have all this very, we've had, you know, just many conversations about, you know, exactly about, you know, the specific challenges that, that students have. Also for, I feel like we're somewhat responsible for uh, like keeping them enrolled or keeping them in the game of, right. of school. Like it's not expressly stated but it's stated in every kind of way that, you know, my university went full open this fall in person and we are not allowed to teach um, online. We're not allowed to have Zoom classes. Um, so that alone is saying saying that. And and, you know, yeah. as as a humanities professor, we're already, I feel like, bearing a lot of that load um, of yeah. of caregiving to students and um, you know, watching them. And, you know, I've been been doing this. I've been teaching actually for almost 30 years. I started as a high school teacher in 1996. So it's been it's been a long time for me. And this is the most intense it's it's ever been. Um, so so that so knowing that about everybody wanting sounding out to keep just turning along just did not feel right. But a lot of folks, you know, I feel like we didn't start it to be a line on people's CV and that I feel like now we're getting they're getting pressured to be productive. So then we're getting pressured to make sure that their stuff comes out. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, meanwhile, we're still the same small volunteer organization that that we've always been. And, um, you know, I that's that's something I've been trying to kind of kind of grapple with. Um, this this year and keeping it going because we we love to do it, but finding a way to make it sustainable and um, you know that we don't we don't let people down, but at the same time that you know there's a some kindness in return or some grace in the sense of you know that we are all doing this unpaid and in addition to everything else. Jenny, that it's- that um, Jenny Stover, that's really touching something in me because. I've heard this across like all sorts of industries that that people are having um, crankier exchanges with their customers, clients, readers, listeners. And I'm wondering, you know, I'll ask you and also ask Hannah if you have any advice on how how do we get people to understand and show grace to those of us who are producing these things out of love and, you know, through our own hard work um, you know, how, how do you respond? I mean, our tendency, my tendency is to ignore some of the cranky comments, but maybe you have some better advice than that. Jenny, you can take that first. I and then, and then... <laughs> I think that's a pretty good, that is a pretty good strategy. I really just speak as, as how I would, how I, you know, with respect and, you know, I don't, you know, sometimes I'll take a day if it's one that especially touched a nerve. I don't immediately respond. Um, I give myself a chance to, you know, walk the dog a zillion times and kind of decompress and then and then respond. But a lot of times, you know, they because they may not know the story of us, they may not know that it's such a small, a small yeah. group. They may not know that. And sometimes I, you know, very kindly just just talk about a little bit about us and why 
you know, we've had to do what we've had to do without it being like defensive or without it being, but just kind of letting people know that we, we do take time and care with it. And that's the other thing, you know, is because we do developmental editing, which is the, like the, the written equ- equivalent of what you do, what you've been doing, Eric, with, with audio editing. We do go through and take the time with the pieces and we hand select all the photographs. We do all the layout ourselves. Like it's kind of, you know, that's, it's important to be able to take that care. So we let them know that, that, you know, that's part of why it's a, it's a slow process. Yeah. Yeah. Publishing is hard work and it is work that is again, like it's treated as functionary work and functionary work. People ha- tend to have I, one to call invisible, but also two to like, just have less respect mm-hmm. for the fact that it's done by, by humans. I have so many friends who work in publishing who have said, like, I have been endlessly compassionate with my authors and the fact that they are struggling and given them endless accommodations and extensions and they direct none of that compassion back to me, right? Mm. They want, they're yeah. like, oh, I'm struggling. Please give me more time. But then when you're like, I'm sorry, I can't turn these edits around as quickly as I normally would, they're like, how dare you? Mm-hmm. Don't you know I'm struggling? Ed- edit faster. And it is that, like, you know, we create these these hierarchies of labor. I see this in the university that like faculty are allowed to be struggling and students are allowed to be struggling, but staff are expected mm-hmm. to suck it up and keep the institution running. And it is that like the 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 categories of labor that are about like helping other people make things. We we don't we often don't value them a lot and we often treat the people who do them like they are tools rather than humans. Yeah. So like, I think you've got two options. You can ignore them or you can send them an email back gently reminding them that you're a human being. Yeah. As a former <laughs> university staffer who was in media production, I mean, I, I felt that all the time and, and I could see it in fellow staffers who over the years would just become embittered and they were the folks who sort of, has the stereotype of, well, they, you know, they don't want to be bothered to do their job. Right. But I would realize it was mostly because they'd felt taken for granted and not had their work respected. And, you know, and it it was a challenge. Of course, then my favorite faculty and and administrators were those who, who did make that recognition and and they exist. Right. But it it wasn't something you could take for granted. Always was, was, um, was going to happen, and that that would always happen, and you could see that the that the real material outcomes on both these people's lives, other staffers, and then also then it has this larger long term effect of disaffection, and the disaffection can become rather, um, I think, uh, viral, if you will, and spread because you you see from you know you, you, the attitude is is quickly contagious, and we're hoping we're not being contagious about a bad attitude here. We're talking to some positive things as well. <laughs> and that's not a dig. I just want people to know they're listening to right. Radio Survivor and where we're, where we're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reesmandel. <laughs> Most recently, you heard from Hannah McGregor, who is an assistant professor publishing at Simon, Simon Fraser University. We're also talking with Jenny Stover, who's an associate professor of English at Binghamton University, and, and both of whom are, are scholars and podcasters and independent publishers, and we're sort of recognizing that parallel between uh, independent publishing and podcasting and, 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 and in the academy, how 
it's valued on the one hand, but as you, as you put it to uh, Hannah very succinctly, you know, also invisible labor, right? That, that it's, it's, and, and there's so much that goes into all of this beyond even the person doing the writing. It's the person doing the editing, the publishing that, that goes on. And that really starts to weigh on us. Jenny, you mentioned that you put your blog, uh, sounding out on, on pause and it's, it's, it's an academic blog. It's, it's an edited blog. And you put it on pause during the pandemic. And I'm wondering how hard was that decision for you and, and your and your co-editors to, to, to make that? Was it easy or did you have in the back of your head that worrying about the, the, the nasty comments and the complaints coming in? It was instantaneous, actually. Like when there was the shutdown, we immediately... Um, they don't call us the hive mind for nothing. Like we just immediately emailed each other, texted each other. And we, you know, it was first and foremost, like that is one thing we have been, you know, as a, as a principle of ours is more humane labor practices. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we, we don't make things do on holidays. We don't make things do uh, January 1st, like just nightmares of, of things are due on January 1st. You know, we really try (laughs) to be, to be mindful of, of when things are due, giving people time, you know, that's always been built into our model already. And so that was just almost immediate. Plus, you know, I'm a single mom with a kid at home who couldn't go to school all of a sudden. Um, Liana Silva, our managing editor, also a single parent teaching high school in Houston. Like it was just physically impossible um, to do all of those things at once. And also having to retrain myself how to teach online, or I should say train myself for the first time how to teach online. And just knowing that if we were going through that, then all of our writers would be going through that and, um, you know, and we didn't want to pr- this model of pressing on through things just to press on um, to, you know, is not something we're we're invested in. We also didn't want to, like, I guess, profiteer or be pu- suddenly publishing things that are just like, oh, sound in the pandemic, like two weeks into it um, like that. You know, we really yeah. wanted to be reflective and um, you'd be su- I mean, you probably wouldn't be surprised at the at the pitches I got that fast. Um and we just said no, like that's that's not something we want to contribute to. So um, that was, you know, for us, it was an easy, easy one. I mean, it's hard not to do it because I do miss it. And I, I really, you know, that's been one of my some of the hardest times of my life. Sounding out was the one thing I was still like able to to get through um, in terms of work like that was. Um, you know, my dad was sick and that was I was still doing that. But like then we just we knew it was going to be be big and we had to act fast to ease people's um, you know, stress levels. Mm. Hannah, how, how are your projects going? I mean, I mean, you, you, you are <laughs> with, with all of this, right? You're co-director of the Amplify Podcast Network. You've got your, your own podcast, which please, um, you know, have you, have you continued on? Has it, have you wrestled with it? How's, how's it going? Yeah, some things stopped. I stopped making Secret Feminist Agenda maybe mm-hmm. six months into the pandemic. Um, another podcast of yours. Another podcast of mine um, that I had been thinking about continuing on into a fourth season. And I had this whole idea about doing sort of a mentorship model in the fourth season that brought in other producers to make episodes. And I was just like, I am so tired. Yeah. And I am like, I am not a caregiver. And I have a, I'm in a research position, so I have a comparatively low, like I am that person who has all of those advantages Jenny was talking about. And I am 
so tired. And so I was like, I can't, I can't ask yeah. anybody to do anything more right now. So I was just like, we're done. Secret Feminist Agenda is done. And then people were like, oh, we're sad. And I was like, too bad. Go back and listen to the old episodes. I don't know what to say to you. Um, were those complaints then- <laughs> or were they more like I'm sad? Because, I mean, there is a difference. No, they were loving. They, they were loving. Okay, that's yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I think my students are going to be excited. I'm talking yeah. to the Secret Feminist Agenda. Uh, <laughs> I'm teaching a podcast in class right now. My graduate students Amazing. are really into oh, your work. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I loved making it. And I think we don't give enough space for like we start things because we love them why aren't we allowed to end them because we're done loving them now yeah like i loved making it and then it stopped making me happy and so i stopped making it and there it's this has always been on my mind and now more than ever there's it's a whose idea was it that something has to happen every seven days and (laughs) why yeah i mean that is something i wanted to put out there yeah. yeah Yeah. What, what do you yeah. think of that? Because so, it's advice that podcasters, you know, outside the everywhere get right. And but yeah. I've I've talked to you know all content. I've talked to definitely right. lots of academics who want to start a podcast. Really worried, you know. I keep hearing it has yeah. to be every week. It has to be every you know, and, and pick a time. And it and it's Monday at noon. And if it doesn't drop, and, and I work in podcasting, and I work have worked at a podcast a comedy network, and I've seen the onslaught of social media complaints when when their cherished improv comedy show isn't in their feed first thing Monday morning, mm-hmm. so I get it. Their free show. But also, I mean, <laughs> their free show, right, that they don't pay for. But also, I mean, I, you know, it makes me wonder, I mean, Hannah, what do you think? Is this, is that really necessary it, to begin with, it's right. I mean, you, I mean, yes. I'm just thinking of your background in publishing no. because of and, and, and the way you look at it critically, right? Because there's a lot I think maybe bundled <laughs> up in that in that exhortion yeah. of of but having to do it can weekly. I, can I save Hannah from answering the question for no, just a I have, moment? No, oh. I know the answer. Oh, okay, I, I just wanted to add. I'll add something at, after you answer. Yeah. Okay. My answer is yes and no. Eric, what's your? What do you well, want to add? Why <laughs> community radio is a non-commercial, non-paying enterprise, and volunteer volunteer lifeblood. That's that's you know those are the the watchwords that I've that have been uh, dri- driven through my brain for 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 thirty twenty years. Uh, why why is it on the same schedule as as commercial radio? I mean, and it, it's it's necessary, but it's also very taxing. It's very taxing to to ask volunteers to accomplish work on a schedule the same way you'd ask someone working at the uh, Ford car assembly line to complete yeah. their work. Yeah, you gave a yes yeah, or no. Yeah, is, please. Yeah, yeah. My answer is that there are best practices in every media world, in every publishing genre, and those best best practices have emerged often for a reason. Um, you know, the reason why it's best practice to, reduce po- to produce your podcast on a regular basis is because it increases listener engagement. Listeners like regularity. They like the episode arriving predictably on a schedule. And the more frequently you can release it, the more engaged listeners will become. So if you can up from once a week to twice a week, you're going to get more listener engagement. You're probably going to get higher numbers. Like that's, that's the reality. You know, similarly, it's the reality, like, why does copy editing happen as part of the production of books? Well, because that is part of the practice of how we produce error-free books. And then people look at, like, 
a Kindle Unlimited romance novel and complain about the fact that it wasn't copy edited. And it's like, oh, you're sorry, you're missing the point. You're applying the norms of publishing in one environment Mm. to a totally different environment where those norms no longer apply. And I think that's what we tend to do is that increasingly as like, we're all supposed to have these like professional caliber side hustles. It's like your make your amateur podcast a indistinguishable in quality and production methods from professional podcasts where whole teams of producers are being paid to make them. Like, well, why? Like, yeah, that's the best yes. practice if you're NPR. Sure. Great. But I'm not. So what is it the best practice for me? <laughs> it might not be. It might be actually totally inapplicable to my situation. And Jennifer Stover is nodding. This Uh, reminds me of conversations we've had about the Sounding Out podcast. So yes, one of our like one of our worst uh, critical emails came about because of the sound of our podcast. Someone who was a very audiophilic, and this was even five years ago. Like it's worse, as you mentioned. Now everybody, I mean, like I said, I'm teaching a podcast class, and it's 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 a struggle um, thinking about sound with people who are very new to it who are doing, you know, studying graduate studies full time, learning how to edit for the first time. And uh, so, you know, Aaron Tremel, our podcast editor, had put out a, it was our, I think our 51st podcast, he put out a manifesto about why our podcast sound is so uneven. And it's a great Mm -hmm. post because it talks about just us wanting to increase access that we don't want to only, you know, take professional pieces or pieces from people who have the audio training and, you know, part of the reason why I'm teaching the podcast class is so many people don't get audio training anywhere. Um, and especially if they are women, especially if they're people of color, that, um, that, that you know, we need to teach it somehow and somewhere. And so we don't want to close off our sound to only those, those privileged voices that have that kind of time editing or ability not to sleep so we can, you know, get that kind of sound. And sometimes it, you know, it actively interferes with the kind of tape we're able to get. So um, that's our stance. It's, uh, I think it's called F- our Manifesto on Podcasting or our 51st episode. You can check it out. Um, so thank you to that person for writing that, that, <laughs> that, that terrible email. So we can actually, like, you know, justify this and actually think it through as to why that was important to us. Not just, oh, like, we were being haphazard about it. Right. It can, yeah. it can be meaningful. Hannah, you sort of stepped up to the line, I think. On uh, You asked the question and sort of answered of, of why, you know, does it need to be almost, you know, why does it need to be of like, say, paid professional level, mm. right? Why do all our side hustles, right? And, and I think, yeah. you know, and I'll say, I think it's because embedded is there, there's the assumption that, right, you called it a side hustle, that we ought to turn this thing into our job, right? And if we're going to yeah. do that, because the audience goes from being a community to the product, right? Ostensibly yeah. for most pot, most high money podcasting that makes money. It's through yeah. advertising and, and in advertising, I work in advertising. The audience is the product. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And so all of those best practices are about building up the largest, most engaged possible audience so that you can sell that audience to potential future yeah. advertisers. But there's and- another there's another dream though that I just want to step in like the other dream is that you've built a a, a show that you share with an audience that that they 
that they become your your they that they they sign up for one of these become increasingly your increasingly problematic startup businesses that that are uh, increasing shareholder value and not valuing the community that they serve and that's another story but like the idea you don't always dream of building something that gets enough audience for 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 corporate sponsorship sometimes you dream of building something that's so beloved by a community that it's self-sustaining and even that dream that's ha- yeah I mean, th- that's Anna. which please yeah so so this is you know this is the the other side of the sort of the unpaid labor of it all was Marcel and I started Which Please when we were both underemployed academics and uh, we carried it on as long as we could. And that at a certain point, the hours and hours and hours of production became unsustainable for us. And so we had to stop making the podcast. And I pitched to her a couple of years ago that I would like to start making it again. And she said, I will only make it if we can have a producer and can pay that producer an appropriate professional audio production wage. And so we went to a network and said, you know, will, are you interested in our show? Will you provide us with a producer? And they said, yes. Um, And their model, this is not sorry, is the network that we're working with, which is an explicitly feminist podcasting network Hmm. whose values are very, very rooted in, um, paying people for their work and so you know one they insisted that marcel and i start taking money for the show because they were like nope Mm. it's the value you get paid for your work Mm. um and two they were like you're gonna have a producer and that producer is going to get paid properly even before your show is making any money that producer is is going to get paid properly tears are coming to my eyes and and we use we use patreon like that was they were like we're, we're distributed by Acast, and at some point, they were assuming we would get ad deals, but our listenership is too um, geographically weird for us to be yeah. interesting to any advertisers. Like, we've got too many Dutch listeners. They're just like, <laughs> what? we can't... Stroopwafels has no interest, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But we have a really, really engaged listener base, and so we are we are supported through Patreon, and... Patreon allows us to pay our producer so that it is a job that she is getting paid to do. How did you you organize your Patreon? Because we thought about that, but then sometimes I'm like, oh, that's a whole other level of work. It's like, I gotta produce special things and make special things. And we we worried about that. One, the producer runs the Patreon, which rules. (laughs) Because she gets... She gets paid. <laughs> this is great. She gets paid out of the Patreon, so she's like actively invested. It's like working in, Patreon, in public making radio, us right? More money. Yeah. <laughs> it's being it's being the uh, development officer okay. in public radio. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it does. You know, it adds to the work. It means that we've got to make more content, but um, it is so much. Like I laugh whenever people are like, "I make a podcast." Oh yeah, my you know my friend produces it. I'm like, "Oh, you don't make a podcast. Your friend makes a podcast. You show up mm-hmm. and talk into a mic once a week." That's absolutely yes. not making a podcast. And so I barely feel like we make Witch Please anymore because mm. we show up when Coach, which is our nickname for our producer, we show up when Coach tells us to show up and we record for the amount of time Coach tells us to record. And then Coach takes the audio and she makes it into a podcast and then she posts it. Like, and it's not invisible labor. I see it. I know who's doing it. Coach is doing it and we're paying her for it. 
And and, and I you, like that so much more. Yeah. Are, are you keeping uh, a weekly cadence? Are you keeping a regular cadence? Or does working mm-hmm. with Patreon give you a little more flexibility in in your in your release cycle? It's fortnightly, um, and we we stick to a regular production schedule because. Um, and this is another piece of it, when you are working with multiple different people, regularity of production schedule is a way of respecting everybody's time. Sure. Right? Mm -hmm. So, like, it got, you know, we've got to get the audio at a certain time so that Coach has enough time to to edit the episode, and then Coach has to get it to the person at the network who mixes it so they have enough time to mix the episode. And if we were just sort of flying by the seat of our pants, then that person who's like, set aside an afternoon to mix our episode is going to be like, what the f*** you guys? I can't. I'm so sorry for how much I'm swearing. Um, I'll take care of that one, Eric. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just be, just be, just, I've, I know you said you don't edit anymore, and I'm like, haha. I'll take nice full try. responsibility for this one, Eric. Um, it's 22 uh, minutes from I the wrote it down, yes. Yeah. Uh, the person who just <laughs> made me had to edit this episode of Radio Survivor is Hannah McGregor, who uh, is a co-creator of the podcast Which Please. I am Paul Reesmandel, and I'm I want to put in a plug for a very recent episode where we went deep on profanity and indecency yes. and described the reason why uh, somebody is going to have to do invisible labor to remove the F-bomb <laughs> from the radio, but not from the web. It's fascinating. Uh, recent episode online at radiosurvivor.com. Yeah, well, go to our show notes at radiosurvivor.com. 100-year history of the reason why you can't say certain words on the radio. It's not what you think. It's and, actually a completely different story than the conventional mm-hmm. wisdom. And that is Eric Klein, and Jennifer Waits is also here, along with our other guest, uh, Jenny Stover from uh, Binghamton University, as well as the so- uh, Sounding Out, the Sound Studies blog and podcast. And uh, we're talking about uh, we're talking about labor, invisible labor, uh, volunteer labor, the things that it take to publish podcasts and radio and all sorts of of things, and and how uh, much of it is unobserved and unnoticed and uncredited, and uh, but nevertheless adds up to making it difficult sometimes to keep uh, really critical projects going. I wanted to uh, Hannah, you brought up the word hope labor. Yeah. earlier and you said you wanted mm. to get back to it so and 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 so i want to get back to i want to know what is hope labor <laughs> i think yeah. i think people who work at community radio and podcasting know all about it even if they've never well, heard please, please those words it. before yeah yeah you feel it in your bones don't you hope labor is a term that was coined by i think kathleen kuhn is her name um a scholar studying blogging and the sort of larger environment of um sort of digital publishing uh, for the sake of some form of self-promotion. And the idea of hope labor is that it is labor that you do for free based on the idea that eventually it will allow you to get to the point where you can be paid to do that thing. And so, you know, look at like the millions of people who have cooking blogs um, and they are, you know, creating these, like writing these long narratives and creating these recipes and posting these beautiful photographs and they're doing all of it for free in the hope that at some point they will get a cookbook deal, a cooking show, uh, you know, that they'll get to do this thing. Um, And that is the financial model of most forms of digital publishing Mm. is we all do it for free in the hope 
that eventually it will be successful enough even, that we'll get paid for it. Even the young people who are younger than teenagers right now are approaching Twitch streaming with that exact uh, with that dream, and that's Amazon sort of set it up that way. There's this like carrot that they might they might do it, and it's like. 11 year olds doing hope labor on video it, game streaming yeah it makes me think also about social media and the whole new category well it's not even that new anymore of influencers so mm. people who are posting things and putting certain hashtags or tagging brands you know hoping that they are going to become an ambassador and become an influencer and suddenly get all these sponsorships yeah, yeah. i mean and i've i've been in a number of radio stations where that was explicitly the model that even the best uh, people running that station were like, we're pulling in volunteers with this, like, if things work out well for this place together, you know, the work you're doing will definitely get paid someday. And that mm-hmm. the nicest people <laughs> were, were yeah. lying to the faces of their coworkers. Yeah. And it's it's endemic in a lot of industries that are perceived as desirable. Um, so academia is full of hope labor. Um, people writing, publishing, teaching for no or almost no pay in the hopes eventually they'll get a tenure track job. Um, unpaid internships are the norm in a lot of industries that are considered desirable. Do this work for free in the hope that eventually you'll get a job. But it's also something that... Um, a lot of corporate digital publishing platforms have taken advantage of and turned it into their entire business model. So they have gotten audiences hooked on the idea that all content should be free and that eventually people, if people make stuff that's good enough, they'll get paid through ads, they'll get paid through attention, they'll get paid through likes. And so people feel no obligation to actually like pay for content ever right because they're used to it just being given away for mm-hmm. free and then this carrot is constantly being offered this possibility that you could be one of those billionaire youtubers who buys custom sports cars um is sort of always held out as a way of encouraging people to continue to produce all of this all of this content for free so taking that into account I'm kind of curious, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, uh, Jenny uh, Stover, but I will a little bit uh, in that. Um, <laughs> that's a terrible setup, and I apologize for it. Um, so I'm thinking <laughs> about like running your blog, right? You're running your sounding sounding out blog, right? And which is yes. obviously, you know, it's people are not. I, I don't believe people are able to be paid. Is that correct, or am I making that up? Yeah, none of none of none of us are paid. And, and, and um, the, we, the, the people yeah. who we've paid, we've paid any artists that we've used their images awesome. um, we've paid any like the artists that designed our logo but all that was was out of pocket um, and we paid translators if we've ever mm. you know we published a piece that was on gospel protests in Montreal we, it was important to us to make sure that got published in French as well so things like that um, we've managed to, 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 to fund we do have interns every semester that are paid through credit at mm. Binghamton University. Mm-hmm. I work with interns and there's a whole section there and we promote their work and also, you know, make sure everyone knows which pieces they've done. And, and uh, so they're kind of paid in credit experience and, um, you know, letters of recommendation. But but no, the rest of us aren't paid. And it's been tricky because, you know, oftentimes I think for us, I was trying to think about how the the hope labor works for us and 
I feel like, because we never thought, I mean, back when we started, we've been, we're going on 11 or 12 years now, mm. like the last two years are hazy. Like when we started, like the idea that people got paid for blogs was, was weird or right. not like, you know, it maybe was the cooking people um, that kind of kicked it off um, or like the parenting blogs, things like that. But we had never imagined that um, to be how, how this might play out. But I also think like our hope, I think our like we we like our autonomy and that's something that's increasingly, um, sh- you know, shrinking at the university along with with everything else. And so, you know, everyone's like, well, why don't you, you know, get funding for this or funding for that? And knowing that funding comes with strings and funding comes with with proprietary um, rights for things and you know, we don't we don't like there's no copyright on our like our blog like we don't have people can republish anywhere they want they retain ownership over their work um, it's open access so you know that has been important to us to keep and, and also with taking advertising like what kind of advertising would we lose our credibility for so we've had lots of fierce conversations about taking advertising and what that would mean and so in some ways it's been really hard for us to think about ways to to monetize it because we don't want to what we would give up for that and that's the, really for us our struggle is is yeah the autonomy versus you know that kind of that kind of payment but then if if it's part of our day jobs at least to run it we would like to be able to pay our writers especially our non you know writers who aren't in academia who don't have day jobs that they get some kind of value from this because a lot of people do get value from from this right. kind of writing and the circulation because i think uh, um, what, what folks who are outside the academy don't always understand or realize is that you know it's understood as part of your job as a as a professor particularly um to publish in a lot of different ways and you you get credit so to speak for it from yes. your employer and you'll be asked on a regular basis to actually you know provide an inventory of all these things yeah. that you've done <laughs> you know so we've we've fought to to make sure that we're indexed through MLA we've made sure that we maintain credibility by not taking weird ad- advertising that would mm-hmm. cause a university to look at it and go, Oh no way. What is this? You know, it's uh, so, so we've tried, you know, that is in some ways ensured that people will still get that kind of value from the work. And our hope was also to change the field. Like that's why we started. It was mm-hmm. because there was nowhere to publish for sound studies. We wanted to make sure that the people who were doing the most innovative work, who are the most precarious, who are the, you know, just starting out, who are not recognized in their various Sound studies is dispersed, so you'd have people doing sound studies work in in various fields where they're the only one at their campus and everyone thinks they're doing something strange. And so the hope for us was to build that community, build that recognition where conversations about race, gender, power, the stuff that, that, that moves through all these various kind of components of sound is at the center of the conversation and that those folks will get recognized, get cited, even if, you know, it takes them years to break into the quote unquote traditional academic publishing. So that was that was kind of our hope. Um, and, you know, we're still we're still continually working at that. And I think that's what's really amazing and groundbreaking about the work that that you do, Jenny Stover, and also that you do, Hannah McGregor, because sounding out um, Jenny Stover, sounding out is a peer reviewed blog. And then Hannah McGregor, you've worked on peer reviewed podcasts. So, mm-hmm. in, you know, you're both. Um, helping to legitimize um, this academic work that lots of people are doing outside of, 
you know, the traditional academy, which is, you know, has pluses and minuses, as we've been talking about for this entire hour today. So, Hannah, I don't know if you have like a quick kind of thought on all that, the complexity of, you know, advancing scholarship by including podcasting and blogging um, among peer-reviewed publications, but also that adding to the labor that we all do. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's tricky because it does, um, like, one of the reasons why it's so important to me to figure out a model for peer-reviewing podcasts is because I want us to be able to put them on our CVs. I want them to count as publications. I want us not to have to do them. And also, traditional papers Mm -hmm. if we don't want to. Um, And so it is a matter of credit. It is a matter of absorbing it into the logic of a particular publishing environment that comes with downsides, as people have pointed out. Like, will drawing podcasting into the world of academia ruin podcasting? Probably academia ruins everything. (laughs) Um, And so I I don't think that's not a risk. And also, academia is built on a huge amount of, uh, like, free labor. And I put free labor in quotes because I am paid for it. Like, I am a tenure-track professor at a university that pays me a salary that is including in that salary the assumption that I will not only publish, but will peer review other people's scholarship and render other kinds of service to the profession. And I'm being paid by a publicly funded institution to do so. But tenure track jobs are rarer and rarer, and more and more people are doing all of this work while literally not getting paid for it. um, Because there's this tiny, either because there's a tiny thread of the possibility of getting a job, or even more insidiously, because it matters to us. And that is one of the real traps is like, why do we do this? Because we deeply care about it. Yeah. And also the students aren't getting paid for their work. Wouldn't that be a a world if, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, it depends, right? Like graduate students have to do a lot of unpaid work in order to professionalize right. themselves. Well, I, I just and meant that, that uh, is part of the classism of even, the even young people, even young people who are learning uh, when, you know, it, it would be a world that would be a lot more egalitarian if especially young adults were paid, paid for their, their work to, to, to learn in school as opposed to, uh, uh, the opposite, Wait. having to pay for it. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry, you I'm... think we should? You think we should pay students? Yeah, to be students. Yeah, why not? They're working. I don't. I think. I think tuition should be free. I think. I'm not sure if I'm convinced that students should be paid to attend school, but I think tuition should be free, and that would be a really strong s- step in the right direction. Well, kind of putting yeah. that aside. You know, I, I wanted to I wanted to put out a kind of a, a, a dichotomy and, a, and get your opinions on it. Um, and because I'm thinking about publishing in all of its forms here and, you know, and each of you having projects, these peer reviewed, you know, intensely edited and reviewed projects that, um, you know, it seems like all, you know, with, with a few with some minor expect, exceptions, you know, the labor is all sort of donated they are not for-profit enterprises, correct? 
right? No, but no, right, no. You, <laughs> Jenny, you you specifically mentioned that you that yes, you went for draining, for draining. I'm noting as well, though. Yeah. A, a, again, a lot of things that that folks outside of academia probably don't know. A lot of journals right. are owned by for profit publishers, right? And so, even though a uh, the contributor, the writers will write them without compensation from the journal. And in fact, may have to, <laughs> in order to access their article, their university will have to pay a lot of money to get the journal, right? Yes. But that the labor uh, that goes into it, at least as far as the publisher is concerned, is is free and donated. You know, I wonder, you know, never mind that it's still labor, it's still labor. Is there a difference between that, which at least you have, as you as you mentioned, Jenny, some autonomy and ownership of it, even if you're not paid, versus, um, frankly, someone else making money off of it and you don't. I'll start with you, Jenny. Is 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 that a yes. is that a real dichotomy? Am I am I not making am I making that up? No, I definitely think so. And that's one thing. You know, when the pandemic happened, one of the things I stopped doing for a minute was reviews. Um, and that's because, you know, it was like my, my work, it was like triage at that point. Reviews and, for and journals. Is that, is that for journals, specific? yes. Because, yeah, yeah. yes, we are expected to do as, as, you know, research reviews. But I, and the only journals I would say yes to were journals that could adequately respond to my questions about how they were managing COVID and the mm. labor, mm. Um, the labor imbalances. Were they asking as many um, male scholars as as you know, men scholars as women scholars. Because that's another thing that's invisible work that's seen as kind. Of, now it's kind of like academic care work to take mm-hmm. on so many reviews because those mm-hmm. are invisible mm-hmm. and private and blind. So I'd love to see you know journals. We very carefully manage um, the you know I guess the the demographics of our publication of our reviews and the equity of that. And I would like to see you know journals making sure that they're actively, you know, working to get submissions from women, taking time if they need time, you know, all of those things. And so, you know, if a journal that that couldn't respond to that, then I would say no. And I'll have to shout out to Robin James over at JPMS at the Journal for Popular Music Studies. She gave me such a wonderful, thoughtful response. And they really were, were taking that seriously. And you know, it's 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 something that we're such we are a small part of, but we need to do more in terms of saying no and and using our 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 protected positions to ask for the kind of equity we want and need. Um, so I think that's a big difference that that we are having constant conversations about that. We also build a community like we're not just publishing. We don't just see ourselves as publishing. I think that's sometimes why we get so hurt when we get those emails, because it's like, you know, we we have the kind of presence we do on the web, we connect people, we constantly, like I've done the Twitter account free for for 10 years. And I've, you know, every time someone who's ever published in Sounding Out publishes anything, I put it on there. Like we, once you publish with us, you're like permanently <laughs> with us, if that makes sense. And we kind of accrete that way. And we, you know, we've, we've connected people and, you know, we're not just something to kind of, you know, find in the the library search engine you know there's a value to that but that's that's not our our purpose the what you just said jenny stover i just want to emphasize because that was the dream of podcasting uh way back um before the for the for-profit corporation patreon came in and gave us a very good model to use to get paid and before the companies that currently are are doing pretty well 
uh, figuring out how to monetize podcasts got paid. The dream was to um, was to build a community, uh, at least some people's dream. Yeah, and uh, uh, people are doing that. I'm not like uh, it, but it's a it's a it's um it's a minority dream. Like to, to understand that your audience isn't there. Um, uh, to help you make money off the work you're doing, but that your audience is there um, because because they're a part of of the work you're doing when you podcast. That you're that 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 you know maybe you have the microphone and they don't, but but they're a part of the of the community, and that's the dream of community radio as well. Uh, despite despite uh, having to ask that audience to pay for all the staff members at some point, all the paid staff members at some point. Yeah. It's, um, it's just something I wanted to mention. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think it's the, it's the dream of a lot of forms of, of um, non-traditional publishing. You know, I always think that podcasting has so much of the same DNA as zine making. Yeah. Of just yes. like it is scrappy and amateur and independent and radical. And it is about making a public and making a community and saying something that you couldn't say in more mainstream ways because there isn't space for your voice in those mainstream platforms. And so you you're like, screw it. I'll make it myself. Yeah. I, will t- I will take up the means of production and produce my own and, my own thing. And it's 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 a one of the privileges of being from Generation X is that there was no Instagram. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. There was no Patreon. There was no Kickstarter. There was no Twitch that um, when you wanted to self-publish, there really weren't corporate tools to help you. So self-publishing zines, what really was mm-hmm. um as independent as anything ever could be in the nineties. And, um, that's something that, uh, sadly all grandpa Gen Xers now are, uh, screaming at clouds, right? Telling, trying to explain to kids that their dreams should include a little bit of, um, I've had this conversation with my son who has dreamed of Twitch streaming superstardom. I'm like, yes, but Amazon is in the way of your audience. And how can you, how can you connect with an audience without the corporations and in a lot of the young people's uh hope labor these days has definitely has a huge internet company between them and the audience it's just the nature of things this has been radio survivor we're rounding out the radio show of course we are also a podcast and this conversation is going to continue on the podcast at radiosurvivor.com anywhere where you get your your streaming regular media uh this has been uh jennifer stover associate professor of english at bingington university and also hannah mcgregor at simon fraser university my name is eric klein my co-hosts doing invisible labor every week is jennifer waits who often books the guests you know writes down a list of questions does the show notes and puts the links to all these things and uh those are all going to be once again online at radiosurvivor.com for today's episode uh links to everything we've talked about previous episodes of radio survivor as well um online at radiosurvivor.com my name is eric klein uh paul Reismandel is also co-host and co-producer of this program thank you so much for listening we'll we'll see you soon and now now we're in podcast i used to say see you next week and uh i'm not making that promise anymore that's uh <laughs> that's one of the things Whoa. that i've had to, to right. change I think. Woo.
I think uh, we did it. We did, oh, we Paul, did we didn't a radio hear it. show. We didn't hear it on our end. Okay, that's, that's great. I, it blew my ears off. There was an alarm. Oh. We were running a stopwatch here. and yeah. didn't hear it. Oh, <laughs> Oh goodness! Uh, and uh, it was unpleasant. I thought you meant Eric putting the mic into the stand, and I was no. like, "That wasn't no. loud. It was fun." No. But so, so yeah, yeah, if you guys are available, would love to continue to to podcast to our to our web audience, which we have no idea of knowing. Are they you know, more? Are they a more audience than our radio audience? I kind of th- I feel as though they are. I also feel like our podcast audience is a. Uh, I timeless think they, I think they are our, different because yeah. for two reasons or maybe one reason i don't know um <laughs> we'll start counting and you'll we'll know if i'm right uh someone is much more likely to stumble on the radio program yeah right um nobody yeah. stumbles on podcasts right and, and i know this because i have to explain mm-hmm. it to um ad agencies um day after day after day no one's stumbling in which is good and bad mm-hmm. uh i think it's mostly right. good um, bad because that makes it hard to build an audience. Good because it means mostly people who want to hear what you have to say are going to hear it. And people who don't want to have to hear what you have to say can very easily not hear it. Um, sometimes maybe they should, but that's that's a, 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 <laughs> it's an entirely uh, different story. Hannah, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. I think that this is kind of a a truism of podcasting versus radio is that radio as a broadcast medium has to be going for a sort of large indeterminate audience and you never really know who's listening. But podcasting is, you know, a digital first born digital medium that is subscription based. Um, One of the few subscription based, in fact, media that we still have though newsletters are starting to catch up we're not allowed to say subscription anymore though this is definitely (laughs) something that i've been burning to talk about on the podcast for but like you opt in right like at some point you have to say but i would like this rss feed to be pushed into my app i'm gonna keep saying subscribe to podcasts for the rest of my life but i'm but because what does apple want you to say what is it paul I don't know. I it's like like or favorite, you know. Follow. It's follow. Or follow. Follow. And, 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 no, we have these conversations mm. like annually Gross. in podcasting, in the industry even, because the problem right. is we worry that people think subscription means money and right. that's what you have to say for free. Mm. Um, but that also, I think from a mechanical point of view, Hannah, you're entirely correct. You're opting in and there is something about that. And it's not like in podcasts they come in a feed but it's not like following someone on twitter or following someone on instagram there is a real difference because it's not like the it's not just a stream of stuff coming at you right right? there's no algorithm determining what gets pushed into your feed and what doesn't you have personally curated the feed of podcasts that you are subscribed to um and so it creates a sort of heightened sense of belonging to a community and of having a connection to the host, which is why, which is why for so many ad agencies, podcast ad space is so valuable. Hey, I have a question. Who is G? Yes, who is the who is our new guest? Have you? I'm. Uh, we're going to kick. You, uh, announce yourself. Are you here by accident? Or uh, I don't think it's Eric. I'm going to see if I'm able to remove. <laughs> oh, it, oh, is, it Eric. is him. He said it's oh. me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he disappeared did Eric, on the did main. Did Eric 
He's just he's just joining from another. uh, He's just joining from uh, so he can be mobile as he goes to uh, somewhere else in his house. So that's incredible. That was (laughs) tripping me out. Um, As we're talking about subscription, one thing I was thinking about was Patreon, which we've been talking a little bit about. Um, And Radio Survivor also has a Patreon, and you can post additional content there. You can post bonus episodes that are either available for everyone or for people who have actually contributed or subscribed um and i mean that might be fun to talk a little bit about like what are the expectations uh within you know that kind of next level of podcasting if you're a subscriber who's paying money for something and mm-hmm. um you know we got a comment recently from somebody in patreon asking if we were still posting which was confusing to me because we're still doing our our podcast but we might not be super active in Patreon, so mm-hmm. then does that lead people to believe that we're not producing? You know, right. even though we're not producing, we're still producing, but we're not producing um, bonus content for our paid subscribers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that might actually just be a functional thing because if that person has downloaded the Patreon RSS feed and then deleted the regular show feed. They might be looking for your regular show episodes to be dropped into the Patreon RSS feed as well. Because sometimes people like I when I'm a Patreon supporter, I keep both of my feeds live. But some podcasts on Patreon drop their regular episodes into the Patreon feed as well. So you only have to subscribe to the one RSS feed technology. Yeah, well, and and er we've made some changes, so not everything, our rebroadcasts aren't necessarily going into the podcast feed, so that actually explains a lot there. We Um, also haven't done Patreon content. Yeah, so maybe there wasn't very much. They're probably responding to there just wasn't very much on the website, to tell you the truth. I mean, so all of a sudden we dropped even more. Two years, maybe. Right, yeah. right. We've been we've been posting less to the free website, radiosurvivor.com. We've been putting less content into the podcast feed uh and that's uh, one of the reasons we're having this conversation today i'm extremely pleasantly i have learned through working at radio stations that it is the 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 worst thing you can do across the stations and this happens this happened very recently at one of the stations i love and kind of work at is talk about the dirty laundry of your work on the air and it's mm. it's a privilege that has been abused many times uh where 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 the workers paid or unpaid go on the air and talk about mm-hmm. their radio station workplace in ways that aren't glowing um so i'm very happy that we're that we didn't do that in today's episode <laughs> well, and um, I, yeah and i think it's more about on the air um you know one thing we didn't talk about or we we touched on i guess is work-life balance. And that's something that I've been really impressed, especially by young people who are setting up more boundaries around around work. And Hannah, I know you have like an auto-reply on your email saying, <laughs> I do. I'm not replying to emails during these, uh, on these days of the week. And I, you know, I've gotten uh, messages from other people along those lines too, which really impresses me because, you know, with email, often we feel like, you know, we need to respond to things so quickly. So Hannah, maybe talk about that. Like what led you to do, to draw, set that boundary with your email? The thing that has taught me how to set healthier and better boundaries 
Um, unfortunately, wasn't any care for myself. It was moving into a stage of career, my career where I am mentoring more mm. um, graduate students, more early career academics. And I witnessed the way they have really internalized the message that they are never allowed to be off. Mm. They're never allowed to have a bad day. They're never allowed to be a human. They're never allowed to show a flaw. They have to be endlessly professional production machines. Um, and... I I find it so horrifying. And I was like, okay, but as when I was a young graduate student, um, I had feminist mentors who were like, have better work-life balance. It's really important. And then all I saw them doing was like working 80-hour weeks and burning themselves out. And the message that I got was, you can't actually do this with work-life balance. You have to work that hard to make mm. it. And so that's what I did. I did what I saw my mentors doing, not what they told me to do. And so I was like, okay, if I want to mentor otherwise, I have to actually do it. I have to actually not be working on the weekends. I have to actually not be answering emails on the day I say I'm not going to answer emails. I have to show that it is possible to be successful in this career and not work yourself to death. Because I actually think it is. I actually think you can be good at your job and not be working all the time. I actually think I'm better at my job for not working all the time. Um, but it's really important to me that I am saying that and yeah. modeling that as much as possible and then accepting it back from my students so that when they turn around and say, I can't do that paper this week, I'm like, I love that you told me. When do you think you can do it? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it's, I mean, I'm, really privileged. I work for a very large corporation where we do actively talk about these issues and where we, uh, and, 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 and it really does uh, my, I'm sure it's always, you know, as it is a universe or anywhere, it, it can be idiosyncratic department to department who you work for, of course, but that, you know, corporate wide, we, you know, and this is a radio and podcasting company and, and digital music company talking about, you know, making sure people have time and you know actually actively there are going to be new policies about meetings coming up in the new year yeah. because of this and i'm somebody who is often scheduled from 9 9 p.m 9 a.m to 2 p.m at which point my brain is no longer useful i started setting out of office messages on my email that said i am in meetings right now and therefore, you, I will get to you when the meetings are over because and, – and I have – you know, and then I also have also told a select number of colleagues, like, if you really need to get to me, you can. Like, you know, a meeting can be interrupted and I can drop out or whatever else. But I am not going to sign myself up to having to multitask a meeting, even if it's over Zoom, yeah. and to, that I'm committing to also monitoring my email and monitoring my Slack and everything else while I'm supposed to be interacting with all these other people, right. you know, and, and I haven't personally, you know, and I, well, I, you know, first I told people I was going to do it. So I gave an opportunity for people who might care to tell me not to do it. And, uh, you know, and I was told, yeah, go ahead. And, and that it would be a good model for, uh, folks younger than I, uh, that they also aren't expected to be completely and utterly on call because yeah mm -hmm. i run out i'm not going to have the ability to to do the work that i need to do which is sometimes work that requires concentration requires writing requires analytics yeah. i read a washington post article this year about how 
uh, many corporations are 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 discovering how a thirty hour work week is more productive <laughs> than a sixty hour work week, uh. and are are you know allowing that freedom yeah. uh, to the to this uh, to those workers to choose the thirty hour week. <laughs> and um, uh, I have coworkers at a restaurant who who were celebrating uh, their seventy hour work week moving to a sixty hour work week. I don't think the university is going to be that corporation anytime soon. Um, and I feel like I think email is a huge, a huge labor issue. Like I yeah. have said it again and again, that something I've watched kind of creep into a situation where I could be answering emails three hours a day at least. And that's not, you know, the, the best use of my time. That's not... <laughs> getting me into a place where I can concentrate and research because the more email you put out, the more email you get back. Um, I do try. <laughs> I have I have that. Yeah, it just multiplies in there. And a lot of it, you know, this idea that part of the brand of the university is that professors are infinitely yeah. accessible now. And that, you know, that's so that's weird not, to me. You know, when I started so weird. in college, Office hours were designed to protect your time, not infinitely expand. I know I'm a Gen Xer. But when I started college and when I started graduate school, faculty were, I mean, and this isn't necessarily healthy, but they were far more inaccessible on a pedestal. And I and certainly first year in graduate school, I, faculty were like very upfront about like, you can get me during these hours. And email was new then. So they were like, some were like, I don't do email. <laughs> You can imagine that. <laughs> you know what? Some still do. And, and the ones who did, some yes. of those faculty said, are still working. I will answer you. But how did they get away within with that? three I days? Mean. Or some, or you know, I will, you know, certainly won't answer emails after five. Will not email answer emails during the day. And, and then that made more sense because we didn't have you know iPhones and always on internet. There was some you know, and they were only doing it in their office, etc. And there were some faculty you know who said, "Oh, I've got an open door," and some said, "No, if it's not my office hours." stay the F away from me and I want nothing to do with you. And we're fairly upfront about that. Mm -hmm. And so hearing this sort of shift, right, which, which I think is true across work cultures. It's, it's, I, I don't think it's, I think it's changed sort of globally. There's probably good sides well, to it, but. Yeah. And people are much more accessible. Well, and I was hearing this during the pandemic too, like, Oh, I mean, since a lot of people are working in their homes, not everybody, but a lot of people are working in their homes, suddenly pe uh, certain types of people were more accessible, you know, for interviews mm -hmm. on radio shows, et cetera. Uh, you know, maybe like high-profile celebrity guests might be easier to get because they didn't have as many engagements outside of their home. Um, and, and you can reach people on social media, Um you know, do you, Jenny, do you think that's part of the reason why you're getting more incoming messages mm. because you're easier to find? Hmm. That's, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question or idea thought about that. Um, I guess I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess the email I, I'm talking about is just like, you know, there's pleasurable email, I mean, kind of or like, you know, when people, DM me on Twitter. They're usually really interesting conversations. When I get like a pile of email in my inbox, it's 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 rarely a conversation that's stimulating or interesting. It's just yeah. problematic and it's taking care of things or you know it be and the instant the expectation for an instantaneous response um, is is part of that. Mm, um, yeah. But I've I've set the same boundaries as you, Hannah. I have that on my email as well. I also, whenever I see it at the bottom of someone's, I 
usually in my response, compliment them on it and, in a, you know, yeah, and really give wonderful. it because uh, there's so much like everyone says they want a work life balance, but they actively prevent other people from having mm. it by talking about them on social media, by like, I, my, you know, like, you know, yeah. so we have to we have to support have each to, other in that. Yeah. I have to. Yeah, that's just say, I don't think the lang- point. I think the language is very flawed of the con the work life balance is uh, i throw that out i don't like it because it's it's your life <laughs> it's there right. th- it doesn't make it doesn't make me feel safe to think that i'm supposed to um have a a a struggle between between work and life and then i have to uh find balance somewhere in the center like it's my life and it should Anyway, I like, but I, yes. um, yeah, Jennifer, that's a good point. the Jennifer, Gen X energy coming off you right now. Yeah, it's big. Well, I'm, I'm so burned out. <laughs> He's yeah. wearing a beanie. When you're wearing also, a beanie, that I'm just I'm wearing comes a beanie. I have a giant beard. I'm in the Pacific Sorry. Northwest. Yeah. <laughs> it's all there. So uh, I'm yes. midlife crisis, but I, I want to, I want to take over yeah. for a second. I want to take the, the microphone and just well, say that Jennifer... Eric, the whole episode was inspired by yeah. Eric. So. But Jennifer Waits does an incredible amount of work and has definitely... Um, it's the it's like when an episode comes on the feed, uh, it's because Jennifer has booked the guest, written the... You know, Paul and I founded the show like on, on, on uh, uh, the local Portland affiliate on the website... The it still says uh, Paul and Eric are the producers, and it just uh, I need to send an email. Speaking of emails to the good people at that station, to be like, just take, I just add, put Jennifer's name on top. Uh, it's been like a number of years now, and I think it's almost the majority of the shows we produced have been uh, shows that Jennifer Waits has booked the guests, written the show notes, come up with the show concept, um, and uh, Jennifer, you prepared a really wonderful. Sh- uh, list of questions today and we got to uh, 99% of them before the end of the radio show concluded but I wanted to pull us towards the I'll let you ask it but it's it's the bullet point that's like one two three four up which is uh, one thing that you've both done is broadening your pool of producers oh yeah and um, yeah I thought about talking about this during the radio show portion because both of you alluded to this um, in our conversation today so and this is something we've talked about on Radio Survivor. So you both have brought in your pool of producers for the podcast that you've worked on. Um, and so I wanted to hear from both of you because, you know, we've, Eric has mentioned this idea recently. Is that something we could do? Does that add to the labor of doing a podcast by having more producers or does that help lessen the load? Um, so maybe starting with you, Jenny, you know, because I know the sounding out podcast you invited all sorts of producers on and so what was that like yes um and we started with a model of wanting to mentor and teach people to podcast or you know as they were doing it or even like aaron has done incredible work with you know send me the tape that you have tell me what parts you want in it and he did the editing and arranging because we didn't want people who don't have editing skills to not be able to to broadcast and so um that was that was really part of our ethos at the beginning and it still is in there somewhere but Aaron's you know we just are again time um has been much less available to do that kind of of education while we while we produce the work 
But that's that's really always been our model. Aaron um, solicits podcasts from from people all over, and he serves as a sounding board for them if they're able to do the the recording and the editing themselves. And that's how we've been able to be so expansive. That's why we're kind of a weird free format. Sometimes they're interviews, sometimes they're sound walks, sometimes they're art pieces, sometimes they are documentary work. You know, that's why you kind of never know what you're going to get. Um, but that's been a way that we've been able to to keep going. We also have um, like regular podcasters. Marcella Ernest um, is an indigenous artist and sound worker out in California, and she submits on a regular basis. So that's that's been wonderful is finding people you have a good relationship with that want a venue for their work. And also, you know, a lot of people do want the sustainability of that, that I know that I can publish here four times a year. I can build the audience for my other other projects, my other work. So finding people that it becomes a mutually beneficial relationship, that they have a stake in it too, and that, you know, that you can, that you can build together. Yeah, that's great. Um, and Hannah, I know that on many of your podcast projects, it's been more of a collective. So maybe describe how that has worked. Yeah, absolutely. The Spoken Web podcast is certainly the most collective model that we have in that each episode is produced by somebody else. Um, so I think quite similar to, to the way that the, the Sounding Out um podcast works is it is a sort of sandbox in which people who do not have experience with audio production can try their hand at making an episode with the support of more experienced audio producers and resources and infrastructure in place so that um, you can sort of draw people who are not familiar with this world into it and give them like a relatively safe platform in which to just like try their hand at it. In that case, again, it is so important for our model that there are people in place who are paid to be the regular, like, we've got a project manager and a supervising producer, which are student roles that are paid through the research project. They're RA ships. Um, And then me, who is the, the, you know, task force leader, and I just sort of consider it part of the, my service load, whatever. Um you know, it's fine. I am, I am paid fine. It's, but we don't need to worry about me. Um, but like the, the ability to keep that podcast going, so much of it comes down to the project management, which is the piece of production. Like when we talk about audio production, we talk so much about like the editing and I really appreciate Eric, the way that you just drew attention to how much of this labor is project management, how much of it is scheduling communication, making sure people all show up in the same room at the same time, making sure the episode goes up when it's supposed to making sure there are show notes attached to it. That is such important work and it has nothing to do with being a DAW wizard. It has nothing to do with like, you know, being able to EQ an episode and it has everything to do with like just tracking information and producing with people. Well, it, producing. Yes, yeah. I mean, the people yeah. skills you have to have in the, just to help someone develop a piece of work when they're nervous about yes. it, when they're unsure about it, when they've disappeared, when they, like there really is an art to, to supporting someone through that, that process. And it yeah. takes a lot of, a lot of care and a lot of email yeah. as we've I mean, been talking about. It's, well, it's a, yeah. it, it's a dream of mine that there would be, you know, Jennifer, Paul, and Eric, and Matthew Lassar, our dear friend who we haven't spoken with 
intimately in a little while. In me personally, uh, someone who's you know who whose work was foundational to this podcast existing, and uh, but these are the only people who produce the podcast, uh, and it's really Jennifer, Paul, and me. And like the dream, the dream is that somewhere out there, there's uh, seventeen more people who want to who want to take the privilege on, but then, yeah, I don't want ever want to use hope labor as a, as a, as a, as a, as a carrot to entice victims like into my world. Like, Hey, produce my show for me. You know, things are going to be great eventually. Like, and, but uh, also this show, you know, not the podcast itself, but although the podcast, the privilege of the podcast includes the fact that we're in the library of congress's like uh, archive forever and so i still dream about the future listeners like and sometimes that's the only thing that keeps me going is just like the unborn listener <laughs> like I, I i talk to them and i think that's a privilege that's i don't want to you know that's something we could share but then also um all of the stations that air us uh really are an incredible constellation of radio stations and audiences we've really weirdly randomly (laughs) shockingly carved out and you know through paul's hard work uh largely and jennifer as well like all of a sudden we're on the air in all these places and it would be like like, that doesn't belong to me yeah and some of it happens spontaneously we get emails like i don't know every couple weeks from a new station who wants to air radio survivor so it's like 50 stations some of them are part 15 unlicensed broadcasters some of them are web based some are college radio stations some are community radio stations some are full power eric like kzsu at stanford i know and well and our local our local affiliates you know god bless them they're sounding a little bad right now but they're you can hear them all over town uh so it's not a it's not it's not a low power FM station. It's a weird, weird uh all and in over Ireland town. and Canada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so okay, because well, you know, the subtext is that Eric has been contemplating whether or not the labor is uh sustainable in the year twenty twenty two. Like I can't you know, I can't keep producing the radio show, but does the radio show not belong to me? Who else wants to <laughs> produce the <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another model that we've used is finding like podcasts that we like that are very young and very new and because we have built us an audience over the years and we have built a platform like that is worth something um and it's not like i'm definitely not the model like you know of course like i said we pay all of our all the people that you know we ask for artwork and stuff but if you are a brand new podcast starting out publishing with us is a way to to grow, to grow your, 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 your audience. And like something like we did a great one with Locatora Radio, which uh, is out in Los Angeles. And they did one of our best and probably most popular podcasts that was about, it's called the landscapes of uh, sonic landscapes of unwelcome. And it's about women of color in public space and moving through public space and they now are, I mean, they, they've just been, you know, a meteoric rise. And I'd love to think that, that we contributed to that um, in the sense of just, just being fans of theirs and saying, hey, like, we would love to amplify what you're doing through, through our feed. Um, and that's, that's, been, uh, that's been great. 
That is yeah. such a great episode, Jenny, <laughs> that you're mentioning. It's my favorite. I love it, it so much. It's so and powerful. I love them. Yeah. Yeah, Mala and Diosa are, they're just incredible. And so it was great to, and, you know, we do promotion. Promotion costs, you know, promotion is paid labor too. Um, Promotion is not free for, marketing is not Mm -hmm. free. Again, only in academia, academia is that considered free labor. And it's very costly labor in a lot of places. And so people know if you, if you really promote their work, like, like we do, that, that, that is, that is something. Mm-hmm. too it's not it's a it's a in kind um i guess that's also the model we have is kind of in kind labor i think more than extractive um and if it is extractive please email me and let me know like, we're always <laughs> i think it's a great i think it's a really great you know? great dichotomy it's a much more succinct and i think um it gets at the actual issue of labor more so than the one i was trying to draw out earlier in kind versus yeah, yeah. Um, and extractive. the and the promotional i mean that's something that i'm really proud of with radio survivor is promoting the work of so many incredible scholars and and I know that um you know I know this is extra work for all of you to come on our show yeah um but but then I also see that it shows up in in reports of um you know oh um this book got um some promotion on Radio Survivor and you know that makes me really happy that that we're turning people on to um this great scholarship that all of you do you know, you're making yeah, me think th- about a conversation I had with the graduate student who is the the supervising producer for the Spoken Web podcast right now. And she and I talked mm, early this semester about um, she was really struggling with she had this this producer she was working with to get an episode out of her and was like, she keeps asking me for extensions because she's having a really hard time because, you know, world is a hellscape and the supervising producer was like i want to give her as much time as she needs and also we have this production timeline that involves getting the episode out at a certain time and the draft needs to be done at a certain time so it can go to our transcriber first because we were trying Mm -hmm. to make sure our transcriptions go out at the same time as the episodes like all of this and she was like what do i do uh and i was like what if we just all agreed that pro- the production of new stuff is one it's not always important or better to be making new stuff all the time um and two like we can all just slow down that's fine i was like so the let the episode be late let it just be as late as it needs to and if she can't do it this month then we'll drop an episode from two seasons ago into yeah. the feed instead yeah. what if we like just hey guys down. remember remember this episode yeah like this was good or we'll grab an episode from from you know a, a sister podcast and be like do you got do you have something we can just put in our feed and we'll so, just record an intro and it's just it's fine it's fine that, 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 and that brings to mind a little a little news factoid I wanted to drop on you is that I saw this report that um, November of 2021 supposedly saw the fewest new podcasts debut oh, in well incredible. over a year's time. That's horrible, right? So, so that <laughs> in October. Uh, 
there were like 16,000 new podcasts. Think about this, just by the way. And I think this is looking at iTunes stats, people who are submitting their yeah, shows. It's just, it's just RSS feeds. It's 16,000 new RSS feeds. But there's probably at least one new episode, right? So let's just at least oh. recognize that. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas there were nine, so 16,000 in October of this year, 9,700 in November. In November 2020, 87,448. Yeah. Well, the reason why that's horrible is that if you, like me, have internalized the graph of how the pandemic looks as far as hospitalizations and deaths, that's, there's a reason. And I mean, and that's not, it's Mm -hmm. not that podcasters died, it's that the stress level. (laughs) Well, and I think there's, there's, right, there's a lot of factors, and there's probably, there's some, these are noisy stats, okay? Yeah. I so I think we can kind of my acknowledge the proportionality, but not really acknowledge the, my, the fundamentals of the numbers. Uh, it's December, and I was born and raised in Southern California in the 90s. And so I didn't know that December was a uh, time off. Seasonal affective disorder. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, and it, I, don't, I reject that as well, just like sure. work-life balance. Yeah. It's like, it's not a disorder, <laughs> It's time to yeah. relax, and oh no no no! Seasonal affective disorder is a thing. You gotta right right. Like, but I don't. You have but, to take vitamin D and get and use a sad <laughs> right, lamp. But it's also like, like it's oh, got a biology to but, it. But also like I'm yeah. not going to medicate myself into being productive enough to to overcome the disorder. I'm going to slow down the amount of yeah, hard sleep work I more. Produ- it's winter. Yeah. We're tired. And um, <laughs> well, it wasn't until a, a a witch who has a show on KPFA mentioned it that December is time to relax. It, you know, the, all the animals, all the plants do it, and so should the workers of the world. <laughs> they should well, go the, a little bit light on themselves. And I was just That's bringing my it up show. because, Hannah, where you were going with, we don't always need all this new thing, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, as, as a consumer of media, I know that, and I hear this from plenty of other people, I can't keep up even with the things that I like a lot (laughs) and that I derive a lot of pleasure from. And, and yet we're sort of given the impression that we have to nevertheless continue to churn out all the stuff, wherever that stuff we're churning is coming or else dot, 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 dot. Right. Or else, or else you will slip into obscurity. One of the biggest things, one of the most important lessons for us was when the first time we went back onto the back ends of WordPress to look at the stats. That's our big mm. corporate thing in the way of what we're doing is WordPress. And um, we went back on there to look at the back end of the stats after being on a pause for, for you know months. And I was just pleasantly surprised to actually see that our stats were great during the (laughs) pandemic because you have good stuff people actually people (laughs) yeah right and if you take the time to produce quality work it lasts like we also still promote our back catalog i mean that's the other thing is whenever i see something in the news i'm like there's a blog about that i know it and there is and i put it out there because that stuff was built built to last and it did you know people went back and read all those pieces they didn't have time to read and our teaching pieces and so I just love our readership and I love that they, you know, use it as a time to 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 dive more deeply into the back catalog and that was really really a great lesson for us that we don't always have to keep 
keep chugging along and that people will 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 be there one well, of the so tragedies much of the work, oh. Oh, so much of the work on sounding out i think um i think the general population is now coming to understand things right. that you've been writing about for so long and so i'm glad that you're that you're promoting um things in the back catalog that now right. maybe you have more open ear a broader range of open ears yeah. for those conversations yeah yeah that's a great point i was just going to say that one of the tragedies of the pandemic is that one year old episodes of radio survivor aren't as time dated as i had as even i the pe- the pessimist of the pandemic had assumed they would be uh post vaccine so airing conversations with people at the moment the vaccine came out in April of 2021, in December of 2021, is not as time dated as you might have feared. So, uh, yeah, none of us, none of us have, yeah, let's we take have a lesson that. from all the big media industries who were completely biased towards the new, the film industry, oh, the recording industry, such that they, you know, threw away, mishandled, re recorded over. Uh, you know, the master tapes, the master reels for what we now consider classic cinema because with the bias towards audiences going to a, a theater with, with a few exceptions, only wanted to see what was new this week. That, that you know, the teenagers only wanted the newest hot single and the newest record. And it wasn't really until like the 80s for both of them that they realized that once folks could listen, you know, when they basically when CDs came out for audio, believe it or not, that, oh, we want to hear the records that are 20 years old. Or when there was home video, we want to watch the movies from the 1950s or 40s or 30s or yeah. 20s, aside from a few canonized classics that the, the, the and, and that and, and yet we still have our, you know, digital media driven by social media in particular is driven towards what is new, new, new up to the minute. Right. And, well, and, and and it's been embedded in podcasting simply because of the nature of the RSS feed yeah, being but, reverse chronological. Yeah. But also it's mm. f- like, this is kind of maybe I'm getting too excited, but like in cinema history, like if you compare the technology of the twenties to the forties, you wouldn't, you, like you just wouldn't want to see those movies anymore. They're not even movies compared to the movies now. And well, it shows you how myopic we are at any given time. But also, they're just harder. To, you have to learn to watch them. Like the the technology is changing so fast that a movie from the twenties and a movie from the forties uh, are not. They're not the same language. They're using, and so so you wouldn't watch films from the past unless you were a film nerd. But now films from the 80s are accessible to 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 children 50 years later well, it's this not is sort of undermine my point <laughs> no it's not and but the same but, but i think that you could say the same thing about podcasts that you wouldn't want to listen to 10 year old podcasts they would sound insane oh i do want but, to listen to 10 year old right podcasts. But no, no but that's us we're we're the film nerds and <laughs> if you were an audience just an audience why know. would you listen I, i'm not no, so but, certain of that but I, now my, my alarm's gonna go off in two minutes yeah, just okay. a heads up but I, I, Eric, I'm not, I'm also not convinced. I think like we do, sure, there's a period of film that we don't rewatch, but there are lots of black mites that are still classics that sure. not just deep film nerds watch that like people just like going back and watching. But how far back? 
Did they did they go back to the I 30s? I mean, yes, they don't they don't go back, and we don't or like the for 40s? the most part we don't go back and listen to Edison cylinders. No, but you're a film. Nerd. I do like you're a film. Like, nerd. but that's. No, I, I, I Why think... do film nerds' perspectives not matter? No, like, of course they do, I but... love the podcasts that I love, I re-listen to over and over yeah, again. I'm listening to a, I love a, a, a six-year-old podcast right now, yeah. and it's the only podcast I'm listening to as I'm going back. And, and our listeners, which please listeners, listen to our back catalog constantly. Right. They are always telling us that they're in the midst of a re-listen. <laughs> and those early episodes, we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> they're so yeah. much better now. It's yeah. so great. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a close to this, especially since we've been talking about you know being protective of our personal time and space. And I really want to thank Jenny Stover and Hannah McGregor for joining us for the radio show and the podcast. It's always a pleasure, and I'm so glad that we were able to bring both of you together to meet. Yes, this is fantastic. Really fantastic, and people are the best. It's the outro music. Awesome. I love the outro music. That was great. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. It's, it's